Good morning. So today, the elders have actually asked us that we would do something a little bit different than what we'd done before. Uh, so I would ask you to stand in honor for God's word as the reading of the scriptures. The word of the Lord this morning is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verses 7 through 10. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. If you are thankful for the word of the Lord this morning, join me in saying thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I pray that our, our standing and the reading of your word be not just a uh, ritual, but that it be a symbol of the honor and respect that we have for you deep within our soul. And may we then afford you that respect and that honor in the hearing of your word as we sing it, as we teach it, as we hear it, and as we live it. Father, for your glory and for the good of all those who are called according to your purpose. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen and amen. As we continue on in the book of Hebrews, I want to remind us that we are called to know Christ and to know him well, to know all about him, to know his ways, to know his plans, to know his thoughts, at least as they are revealed to us in the scriptures, to know how these things and all of them apply. Your task, if you want to know where do I start as a Christian, well, it's the same place you finish as a Christian, and that is to know Christ more today than you did yesterday. It's that simple. The harder part is actually getting out your Bible and reading it. And just so I'm clear, as we think about knowing Christ, we do learn a bit about Christ from life in general, from, from the world, from creation. But even that, quote, life experience that you claim in knowing Christ still has to be filtered through the word because your life experience might be understood or interpreted wrongly. Your task is not to, quote, experience Jesus, end quote. Your task is to know Jesus and then to reflect him and what you know of him. That's it. It's really that simple. And Hebrews, as, if, as with every other book of the Bible, is displaying the glory of God through his son Jesus that his people would know him and live accordingly in their lives reflecting him. And the next few verses that we're going to read today, and, and, and particularly going here to the end of 5 and the beginning of 6, this is basically what he's going to say. If you want to persevere in salvation, if you want to strive and enter into that rest, ultimately, you have to move on from your toddler understanding of Jesus Christ. Now, no offense to your toddlers, but you need to be smarter and know more about Jesus than they do. Some of us are still living on feltboard Jesus. Some of us are still living on five-minute devotional Jesus. As Rusty was recounting his trip to Amish country uh, to me the other day, and walking through the Christian bookstore, of which we, I, I didn't know those were still existed, same with Pastor Jeff, they should not. Yes, most of them should not. Uh, there's uh, one-minute devotionals. I what even is the point? One-minute devotional. Even our beloved devotionals from guys like Paul Tripp, of which I would commend to you, 
if that's all the study time of the word you put in, or even your Oswald Chambers, utmost for his highest, as, as good as that is, if that's all the study that you put in, let me be frank. I, my name's Matt, but let me be frank with you. The chances of you persevering are slim. I mean, that's, that's the, Hebrews is, point, is painting this picture for us. If you're to make it, then it's hard. It's hard work. And five-minute devotionals won't cut it. Being in your Bible once a week won't cut it, especially if you are counting this one. Especially with the increasing hostility of our world. Listen, do you see all the people right now that are caving to the LGBTQP nonsense? P stands for pedophilia, by the way. Majority of those people have a toddler-level education about Jesus. So what's the big deal about chasing the next whim? It's time for us to gird up our loins and dig into the Word. Now the context here of chapter 5, verse 7 through 10, is Christ our King Priest who's actively and powerfully went to the cross to bring us into fellowship with God. Now he is actively and powerfully keeping us in fellowship with God. He is actively and powerfully securing our perseverance to the end. Listen, the priest's role didn't stop after the sacrifice was made. He instead was a daily reminder and help to God's people, pointing them to repentance and faith in the mercy of God, reminding them of what God said. Why do you think God, at least in part, set aside an entire tribe of priests, the Levites, to walk among God's people, to remind them, to work on their behalf, not just in the, in the sacrificial time, or the offering of sacrifices. And the reality for us is that the assurance of our perseverance is in this king priest. Even as we strive and we work hard and we act in discipline and self-discipline and we know our Bibles, our assurance is in this powerful and active king priest Jesus. Our perseverance comes as we trust in the priestly work of Christ, both in the past and in the present, and as we look to the future, hoping and depending and believing in his grace that will be there tomorrow. We will persevere as we grow in knowing and trusting this priest, Jesus. Here's my main point for this morning. Simply this, Christ became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Christ became the, the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. If you underline your Bible, that's a great one to underline there in verse 9. My, my title is Christ Became. Christ Became. My first point is also Christ Became. You say, What? You mean Christ wasn't everything he needed to be from the beginning? For some of you, this might be wrecking your theology. And if it's putting you a little off kilter, that's good. It's time for us to think more deeply about Christ. Christ became, first of all, Christ became a man. You say, well, all right, all right, I got that one. That's, that's pretty good. We celebrate that at Christmas. Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he, he was heard because of his reverence. So Christ became a man. This in the days of his flesh. What is he talking about? We're just going to walk through each of these verses a little more systematically here than normal, at least for me. In the days of his flesh. He's meaning from the beginning to the end. I think he's referring from birth until ascension, 
These are the days of it from the beginning to end. It was a time of frailty and weakness and struggle. So you, you got to start, this is, we're going to build on this thought. In the days of his flesh, a time of frailty and weakness and struggle. And this is going to hit multiple times throughout the sermon today. You see this in the next phrase where he says, with prayers and supplications, loud cries and tears. These only come, those things only come from someone who is acquainted with struggle. Someone is acquainted with fighting and endurance and perseverance and swimming upstream. This isn't coming from someone who's unacquainted with grief. If you've not been acquainted with grief or struggle, then you don't offer up loud cries and tears. One guy said this, his offering, Jesus' offering being accompanied with priestly prayers and supplications, these are mentioned to exemplify Jesus' frailness and to impress upon us how great a work it was to make expiation or compensation for sin. How great a work that was. And the fact that he's offering up tears and cries and prayers is because he is frail underneath of that. that that's such a hard work. That these prayers, though, and supplications, he goes on, are not to be restricted to the agony of Gethsemane, or the hours of torture on the cross. They must be regarded as being offered by him through the entire period of his humiliation, or the entire period of his incarnation. Quote, The pressure of human guilt habitually weighed down Christ's mind, and he was by way of eminence a man of prayer as well as a man of sorrows. So Jesus didn't become just acquainted with the guilt of man at the cross. He was acquainted with the guilt of the sin of man throughout his life. Christ did not know the guilt of humanity just up there as he hung. He saw it as he walked with the tax collectors. He saw it as he ate with prostitutes. He saw it in the Pharisees. He felt the weight of the guilt as he walked with the disciples. He was acquainted with human guilt throughout his humanity. And these sufferings were so strong that his life was not absent of strong crying and tears and prayers and supplications. So let me pause here for a moment and insert a little bit of application. Let me ask you. If Jesus offered his life to God on your behalf, and he did so with loud cries and tears, then do you think you are saved if you are unmoved by your sinfulness or you are cold towards your unbelief and indifferent towards your unbelief? If Christ was moved to tears on your behalf for your sinfulness, then why would you consider yourself redeemed if you are unmoved or indifferent to your own sinfulness? That's not someone who has the heart of Christ. In the days of his flesh, the next phrase, unto him, unto him. Right, if you read that verse, it says, um, with loud cries, to him, or to unto him who was able to save him from death, and so on. Unto him, it shows us what Christ in this frail humanity believed about God. So Christ, frail humanity, what he thought concerning his Father. And what he thought concerning his father is that he was able. That this deliverance, that his father was able to affect the outcome of that. Now remember, we got to remember, I set this up last week, that Christ had a veiled omniscience. 
that in his humanity, he wasn't void of his all-knowingness, but it was veiled, it was covered. He would have learned from the scriptures what to believe concerning his father. So if he's thinking, my divine father can alter this circumstance, he believed that because he read it in the Bible, because he knew the scriptures. And in his humanity, he believed that God was divine and able to save him from death. One, one commentator pointed this out. I think it's a helpful distinction for us, but don't get lost here. This confuses you. Just hang on. You can pick back up with me in a second. Ability or power. When Jesus says he is able... Ability and power has kind of two aspects to it. It can be natural or moral. So there's two aspects here. Natural power, natural ability is like the strength and active efficacy. Meaning in God, this is like his omnipotence, his all-powerfulness. But then there's moral power, moral ability, which is right and authority. This is God's absolute sovereignty, his right to choose the outcome. So his ability, God has, he is able to change the situation in two senses. One, he's physically able to make it happen. He can change it. He has the power. He's also able to do it because he has the right to. He has the ability to. So just because you might have the power to change something doesn't mean you have the, the right to change it and vice versa. Just because you have the right to change it may not mean you have the ability or power to change it. In this situation, Jesus believes God has both. Now, Christ looked toward both. This is where this is is important. I believe Christ looked toward both aspects. In God's omnipotence, his power to change it, he sought deliverance. But in his view of his sovereignty, Jesus meekly submitted He knew God could change it, but he knew God knew what was best, and he submitted his will to the Father, the former being the object of his faith, like he's trusting in the Lord, but in the sense of his his fear, not in a scared sense, but in the fear of his, his reverence and his respect, he trusted the Lord. That's why he says he was heard out of his reverence. I mean, his recognition of God's right in the situation. Here's what this means. Christ appealed to God's power to save him, but he appealed to God's rightful authority to choose by submitting to him. Listen, Jesus knows that God was able to remove this from him. But Jesus submits to the will of his Father. Jesus can do both. My kids can appeal to my ability to alter a situation that is less than preferable while having in their loves a greater love that says, I trust my father to do what is best. Namely, I trust his way. In this idea of unto him who is able, as Christ is submitting there, We need to understand, Jesus did not presume upon God. He didn't ask God presuming that he would do A or B, meaning he didn't assume that God was going to do whatever Jesus wanted. He understood the high sovereignty of God, his right. A.W. Pink says this, these two attributes of God, meaning this sovereignty and, and this omnipotence, should ever be before us when we approach unto God's footstool. A sight of his omnipotence, his all-powerfulness, will encourage our hearts and strengthen our faith, while a realization of his high sovereignty will humble us before him and check our presumptions. It says, in the days of his flesh, he offers up these prayers unto him who is able to what? Deliver him from death. Death. What does he mean by death? This is crucial. More in just a second. But, but meaning the wages of sin. 
That's what it means by death. The wages of sin, the curse of the law, which God as just judge inflicts upon the guilty. So you don't, don't think uh, merely physical death. Think the payment of sin, the wages of sin. Now, what was the deliverance that Jesus sought? Did Jesus seek deliverance from death, physical death? Let that pass from me. No. No, Jesus didn't seek that. He knew he was commanded to endure that long before the cross. Read John 10, 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay down on my my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus knows that this physical death is his plight, that that is the plan. So Jesus was asking, he was, he was, not, being, was not seeking to be delivered or have exemption from death or suffering or even the wrath of God. So what then was Jesus asking for? What was the deliverance he was asking for? Note carefully in this passage that Jesus does not pray to be delivered from dying, but from death. This is crucial. Jesus was seeking, here we go, to be sustained under the wages of sin. Okay, so he wasn't, he wasn't seeking to avoid the physical pain, the, the wrath even of God. He was seeking to be delivered from it crushing him, from it being the end of him. So you can seek to, for something to not overcome you while not seeking to be delivered from the thing that might overcome you. Jesus understood the frailtiness. That's, again, the picture being painted here. So here's what happens. Let me paraphrase. Jesus, Jesus is in his humanity, and into his vision comes God's anger going to be placed upon him for our sins. Right? Just as a man, one day he realizes that's what's coming. And he has a deep and dreadful apprehension of the utter inability of frail human nature bearing up under and prevailing against it. He was praying that God would sustain him through the entire payment process. Let me repeat that again. Jesus was praying that the Father would sustain him through the entire payment process. Jesus was crying out to the Father, if I could put it in my own words here, saying, Father, your plan for me is to wipe out all the wrath due for my people, but my humanity is weak. Sustain me, please. Carry me through. Jonathan Edwards said this. This is why this, is, this point is crucial, and I'm going to land here today too. This, in that moment, the, the wrath is coming. I know that's your plan. I trust you, Father. I need your help to see it through. Edward says this, this, speaking of what I just described for you, this was the greatest act of obedience that Christ was to perform. 
He prays for strength and help, that his poor, feeble human nature might be supported, that he might not fail in this great trial, that he might not sink and be swallowed up, and his strength so overcome that he should not hold out and finish the appointed obedience, drinking it till its very last drop. I added that last part. Back to Edwards. He was afraid lest his poor, feeble strength should be overcome and that he should fail in so great a trial that he should be swallowed up by that death that he was to die and so should not be saved from death. And therefore he offered up strong crying and tears unto him that was able to strengthen him and support and save him from death. And the death he was to suffer might not overcome his love and obedience, but that he might overcome death and so be saved from it. That was his prayer. His prayer wasn't, let me avoid the situation. His prayer was, God, help me to make it through it. Help me to be obedient through it. Help my, to, for my body to not give in underneath of it. Don't let that death swallow me up. That's why the resurrection is so important because it's God keeping his promise. John Piper said this, Jesus did not go on praying for the cup to pass. He went on praying for success in drinking it. Application, when that trial comes, meant to deepen your faith, what's your greatest prayer in that moment? God, take it away? Or God, sustain me through it? Because, listen, the depth of our faith and righteousness has a direct correspondence to the depth at which it's tried. And that's what's happening. And listen, Jesus, again, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but Jesus is tried. His obedience is tried. His faith is tried here in a way in which there is no greater trial of which anyone could ever face. More on that in a bit. Another point of application. Is this the Christ that you know? Is the Christ you know some wimp who went to the cross because he had to? Or is it the Christ you know the one with faith and commitment to ask the Father to sustain him through? And your life will reflect the kind of Jesus you believe in. Last sub-point here. God heard him. God heard him because of Christ's reverence. God heard him and God sustained him through. So Christ became a man. Next, Christ learned obedience. Christ learned obedience. Verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Luke 2, 52 says, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Some of us, I think to our detriment, have an over-realized understanding of Christ's divinity to the detriment of understanding his humanity. So we just kind of chalk all of his life up to, oh, he was God. So what hope is there for me is usually the thought or sentiment that follows that. So how can I bear up underneath this trial? How can I overcome this sin? How can I be righteous? How can I? I he was God. You know, he learned obedience. And he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Listen, Jesus as a man was not born with everything attributed to him that was attributed to him when he died. Let me say that again. Jesus, as a man, was not born with everything attributed to him that was later attributed to him when he died. 
To say that Jesus learned obedience is not to say he was once disobedient and finally became obedient. Right? I mean, when we look at our kids, we look at our own lives, that's how it is for us. But Jesus, who was obedient, increased in that obedience, meaning the depth of his trials increased, so therefore the provenness of his obedience increases. That, that, that like when we, and this is the danger in general when it comes to interpreting the Bible, is for us to take our experience of lacking in obedience and then gaining obedience and reading that into a passage like this. We have to step back and kind of set that, that to the side. That's why our experiences can be terribly unhelpful sometimes. When we press them into the text, that's not what he's saying. But his obedience grew. He learned experientially what it was like to obey in his humanity. Now, what is obedience? So if he grew in obedience, what is obedience? It is subjection to the will of another. Obedience is subjection to the will of another. It's simply that. Or to put it as someone else said, it's the owning of the authority of another. I really like that definition. It's the owning of the authority of another. We tend to think of owning as putting ourselves over. Well, that's true. You can certainly put yourself over something, but you can also, put, you can also own the responsibility of being under the authority of another. I think that in, communicates the idea of, of owning being under the authority of another communicates to us more than just you say jump and I jump. Instead, it's more like you say jump and I say how high and then to do it with joy. So owning it. I'm going to own the authority you have over my life. That's why, that's why submission is not just doing what we're told, but it's an owning of the authority over us. Jesus grew in this obedience. We also know that Jesus didn't have to be forced to do this. That he delighted in the will of his Father. In Jesus' humanity, as he became a man, he enters into this experience of what it's like to obey as a man. And what we see in the scriptures is that there was no rebellion in Christ. He never once said, no, nah, I don't think so, God. Or, no, God, I don't think God knows the best way. But instead, his obedience was voluntary and deep from his soul by faith. Now, this obedience and growing in this obedience was ultimately for the purpose of high priest, which is where he lands in, the, in verse 10. Listen, the Old Testament sacrifices had to be spotless and without blemish. But in view here, this is key, in view here is not just Christ checking some boxes, but is his personal excellency. It's his active obedience. It's him actively owning the authority of his father. It's not him just merely being without sin. If Jesus was just without sin, then it just, the ledger is just at zero. But if he's actively pursuing, he's actively righteous. His excellence, he's growing. So, so it, he comes onto the scene and he is without sin, but it doesn't stop there. You see the excellency and the perfection of his righteousness. And that culminates in him suffering the greatest temptation, the greatest measure of wrath, the greatest pressure to turn away that anyone could ever face. Matter of fact, none of us could ever even potentially face that. And he faces that as he goes to the cross. More on that in a bit. That's why this understanding of learning obedience is so crucial. Jesus didn't just avoid sinning. Instead, Jesus actively grew in his excellency. Hebrews 9, 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, 
who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. How much more than blood and goats? And it's not just this is an animal versus this is Jesus. It's this is an animal and its blood versus Jesus whose obedience was perfected and his righteousness perfect. Meaning not perfect as in he was perfectly obedient, like perfectly uh, righteous, but the depth of his righteousness is sufficient, perfectly sufficient. This enabled him to be this high priest and to finish it all at the cross and then to act on our behalf subsequently. Uh, How did he learn obedience? He learned it through suffering. Surprise, surprise. He learned it through hardship. Everything that he suffered from first to last is included here in this passage, not just the cross. And as he suffered, so his obedience grew. It grew, though, in extent and intensity by the very pressure brought to bear upon it. Do you see that? The pressure has a direct correspondence to the depth and the intensity of the proven righteousness. That's why we say his righteousness, he was born righteous, and then he grew in that righteousness, grew in its intensity and its depth. How does that happen? Through greater options with more intensity to obey or disobey. It's like this example in my own life. If I give my sons the chore to feed the cows, a big bay of hail, a big bay of, uh, a big hail of, what is my goodness, a big bale of hay, there we go, and water. I have two different scenarios for you here. The first time they go out to do this, it's sunny and 70 degree weather. That child obeys wonderfully. He was righteous. In the next scenario, two weeks later, because it's Ohio, it's a blistering negative five and snow blowing sideways. And he still obeys wonderfully under those conditions. In which condition might he have been tempted greater to disobey? That might have required more trust, deeper faith, deeper trusting, knowing this is what's good. The the negative five blistering day. So the intensity of his obedience grew between scenario one and scenario two. Do you see where the extent and the intensity brought to bear upon Christ's nature and his obedience and how he shows growth through that? Now, couple that with, again, the reality that the suffering of which Jesus would ultimately go through on the cross, there is no words to describe the intensity of that call to obedience. There's no greater even option you and I would have to prove our obedience than what Christ does on that cross. Why do we flatten obedience? Why do we as parents not increase the intensity at which our kids have to obey? Why do we expect the intensity of the pressure under which we must obey to not increase? Why? That's what grows faith. That the intensity of the trial directly corresponds to the intensity of proven righteousness. If it took, listen, if it took suffering to increase the Lord's obedience, what makes us think for us it might take something else? And why do we just try to avoid it at all costs? Listen, I, I'm not saying, I, I, me too, I try to avoid it at all costs, and I shouldn't. Next, Christ was made perfect. Christ learned obedience. Next, Christ was made perfect. 
Verse 9, and being made perfect. It's really easy here to read, to, to insert into the passage, moral perfection. Like, and Jesus is now morally perfect. That's not what the passage is saying. What he means by perfect here is like to consummate or complete something. That it's, that it's dedicated or fully consecrated. It's fully set apart. It's fully ready and complete. Not morally changed. It wasn't that he was morally imperfect and then finally became morally perfect. He was morally perfect from the beginning. But Christ had to, listen, had to endure righteously through suffering in order to be perfectly prepared and complete and ready to be our high priest. To be that priest who would endure forever for all of his people with one sacrifice. And not just to be the priest, but to be the priest with all authority in heaven and earth. His proven righteousness through suffering is what makes him perfectly consecrated and set apart. Again, by Christ's suffering, he was perfected. Again, it has reference to this being set apart as Christ the priest. Listen, your Old Testament you got to know the pictures of the priests and how much setting apart had to happen. That's the picture being painted here. John Owen said this, But it belonged unto the perfection of the priesthood of Christ to be consecrated in and by his own sufferings. By his sufferings, he was completed and set apart for this task. In a sense, he was earning his stripes. He was completing the training manual. Now, don't miss this. Got a little bit of a side note. I mean, it's it's a it's a main point or a, it's a point in the passage. But don't miss the timing. He was made perfect, and then he became the author of salvation. Right? Read read the passage, verse nine. And being made perfect. Then he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So being completely set apart, consummated and readied, he becomes the eternal source of salvation for all who believe, for all who obey. Pink said this, having thus been made perfect through such intense, obediential pious suffering, having thus obtained all the merit, all the power and authority, all the sympathy which are necessary to the discharge of the high priestly functions of Savior, he has become the author of eternal salvation. And those pieces were all in place. He's now fit and ready equipped to take on the role of a high priest for you and for me. Back to last week, again, the active and powerful work of the priest. To do that, he had to earn his muscles through his humanity under the weight of suffering. So Christ became now let's talk about this salvation. This salvation. This is my second main point, if you're taking notes. This salvation. Verse 9, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So the work of Christ, his bearing under suffering and proving his righteousness, that's what I have in mind there when I say the work of Christ, bearing under suffering and proving his righteousness, being made perfect, he now becomes the source of eternal salvation. See, I think for some of us we think, all right, 
There's this God sends his son and he's divine and he has to put on some flesh for a little while and then he, he, he suffers this death on the cross and all of a sudden he's our salvation. And that's the extent of the depth of your understanding of redemption. Listen, if you're a, a newer believer, that's a great place to be. If you've been a believer for a while, you gotta move on from that. Not move on as in forgetting that, but you gotta add to it. It was under this suffering and proving his righteousness, the intensity that he's now been made perfect, then he becomes this source of eternal salvation, the only source. Why? Because it's the only possible source. What was needed for salvation? Someone said it this way, for this eternal source of eternal salvation, what was needed? Quote, full achievement of the holiness expressed in the law of God. Full achievement of the holiness expressed in the law of God. That's what he had to do. So God's holiness expressed in his law, because remember Jesus was man, so he would have had to read the law. So God expresses himself, he describes his holiness in the law, and Jesus has to fully achieve keeping all of that. Pink said this, it was the perfect satisfaction which he rendered to God the propitiatory or the absorbing sacrifice of himself, which has secured the eternal deliverance of his people from the penal consequences of their sins. By Jesus' expiation or his compensation, his paying for, he became the purchaser and the procurer of our redemption. How marvelous! How just utterly marvelous. Let's not miss this, though. This salvation is eternal. It's not temporal. It's not short-lived. It's eternal. Our world can offer you nothing but a momentary salvation from something, and that's it. But we were made for eternal duration. You and I were meant to live eternally. But by sin, we made ourselves fitted for eternal damnation, as one person said. Therefore, eternal salvation is our deepest and most dire need. Right? For those who are fitted for eternity, who suffer under their sin, their greatest and dire need is to reconcile that. Two... If Christ's work was infinite, talking about this, salvation is eternal. We were made for eternal duration. Two, if Christ's work was, was ongoing, eternal, infinite, because he's this infinitely holy, and he's also divine in that moment, able to absorb it all, then the justice rendered must be a salvation of infinite value and duration. So our greatest need is something of infinite duration because we were created for infinity. But if Jesus' death was infinite, then the salvation he provides, the only just, uh, um, uh, what was I going to say? Oh my goodness, what's the word? Uh, the only just uh, when the judge gives his pronouncement. What's that called? Verdict. The only just verdict, the only just outcome of an infinite sacrifice is to provide infinite salvation. There we go. That was a struggle. Thanks for helping me. Now, this is in contrast. This is in contrast with the salvation acquired by the Levitical high priest. Those atonement practices held good for a year only. Christ's for eternity. Next, the salvation is for all that obey him. For all that obey him. To all and every one of them that obey him, none shall be excluded. This is not all men universally, but as one writer said, this salvation is for those who bow to his scepter.
Now, I, I don't think that this obedience here is, is a legal one. It's an evangelical one, meaning Romans 16, verse 26, it's the obedience of faith. It's the obedience of faith. It's faith in him. Now, that leads to physical, legal obedience. But the obedience of the faith and an ongoing obedience of the faith, not just a single act of faith. Like, like many of you grew up in churches where it's just, all right, just got to place my faith in Jesus, and then you just kind of move on into whatever land. But an active, ongoing obedience of the faith, living a life of faith. Like, I want you to see the connection here in the passage, immediate, right before us. Jesus has learned obedience, meaning the, the depth of his faith and trust is connected to those who get salvation are those who obey him. Right there. You don't even have to read very far. The salvation that was earned by one who did so by faith in his legal actions is the one whom we are saved by faith in his work and his faith. I hope you see the connection there in this passage. Next, and my last point is this, but we'll be here for a moment. As Christ exceeds his predecessors. Christ exceeds, if you know how to spell that, it's up on the screen. Hopefully I spelled it right. Christ exceeds his predecessors. That, that's, right, that's been the picture being painted from the beginning of Hebrews, and it'll continue. Even as, we, even, as we, even as we have these great pictures of the hall of faith and Moses and Melchizedek, we have these great pictures of these magnificently faithful men Christ exceeds all of them. Verse 10, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Listen, Jesus met and excelled what the Levitical priesthood was pointing toward. So if you want to see what, how beautiful is this picture of Christ and his priesthood, you've got to understand the Levitical priesthood. I'm going to rattle off a quick list from, from A.W. Pink. If you want to grab the list from me later, you can. I wouldn't bother writing right now. You won't write fast enough. How did Jesus excel? How did he exceed his predecessors? One, first, Aaron was but a man. Christ was the son. Second, Aaron offered sacrifices. Christ offered one perfect sacrifice once and for all. Third, Aaron was compassed with infirmity. Christ was the mighty one. Fourth, Aaron needed to offer his own sin, uh, needed to make an offering for his own sins. Christ was sinless. Five, Aaron offered a sacrifice external to himself. Christ offered himself. Six, Aaron affected only a temporary salvation. Christ secured an eternal one. And seven, Aaron's atonement was for Israel only, Christ for all of them that obey him. Christ exceeds his predecessors. Next subpoint there, talking about Melchizedek. He adds here, the author of Hebrews, being designated by God. Again, notice the timing. It's not until after Christ had offered up, Christ had learned obedience, Christ had been made perfect, had become the author of salvation. Then he was designated as, by God as this great high priest, right? He's made perfect. He's readied. Then he becomes the eternal source of salvation. Then God designates him high priest. After he had finished all of that work, what do you think, again, why, why Jesus says it is finished. Hopefully that has a lot more words to it when you try to describe it. Notice the incredible parallel with Genesis 14. You have to go back and read. This is the passage where Melchizedek first comes onto the scene. He greets Abraham. 
after this incredible conquest over God's enemies. So Abraham's been out fighting on behalf of God. And when Abraham returns, and the words that are used in Genesis 14 talk about the slaughter of the kings. We see this later on as well. Melchizedek then appears and blesses Abraham. So after the work is finished, the king priest appears on the scene, and Abraham, who had just done this work, offers sacrifice to Melchizedek, the high priest and king. Then what happens? Melchizedek owns the victory. In like manner, God has greeted his mighty victor, Jesus Christ, with a job well done, son. Sit on your throne after he's completed the work. Then he designates him high priest after he's finished it all. There are no words to describe the righteousness of this high priest. It far exceeds. Back to that phrase, and being made perfect, he became the source of our eternal salvation. Not just a yearly salvation, but our eternal salvation. Now, I want you to go back to the example of the hay feeding there, the bale of hay feeding that I gave you. You've got to have some grasp of total depravity here. You and I, total depravity defined as you and I can do nothing righteous apart from God's grace. Nothing righteous that brings him glory and honor. Nothing. Everything we do apart from his work is evil. Even helping granny across the road. And that evil is then measured not next to your aunt whom you can't stand, but your evil is measured against the infinitely holy triune God. Christ was not born with the depth of righteousness needed for him to be the source of salvation that was needed, meaning the intensity. And so as he grew, the intensity of his testing increased such that the depth of his righteousness and his faith would increase. Again, the depth of his Outward obedience increases. Remember, it takes greater depth of obedience to walk the hay out in negative five than it does in 70 degree sunny weather. Now follow me. So Jesus, faced with suffering as he grew, these trials that he faced, all of these trials and all of this suffering preparing him for the next and the next and the next. Jesus doesn't go with the trial of trusting his mom and dad to eat his dinner and obedience there to then walking up to the cross. He goes from one degree to the next, one degree to the next. And once he's ready, once he's perfected, now the Christ, as he's being perfected, now the Christ man is faced with the cross. But don't miss the depth of the test of the cross. Jesus, the one whom enjoyed heavenly bliss with the Father for all eternity, nothing but joy and unhindered fellowship, is now faced with the reality that that God, his Father, is going to pour wrath out on him. Even an ounce of wrath would have been infinitely different than anything he had ever experienced from his Father. But not just the wrath for anything he's done, but the wrath for the sin you've done. So let that compound the intensity of the trial. And if that's not enough, the wrath that he would take on to bear, that would take you and I an eternity to repay. 
So if you and I were to have to bear the wrath of God, this is why hell lasts for an eternity, it would take you all of eternity. You would never repay that price. So Jesus doesn't just take on an ounce, but he takes on in a moment what would take you an eternity that you would never be able to repay. And he swallows it up in that moment. But not just that. Again, compounding the measure, the intensity. He doesn't just take a drop for you. He takes all of yours. He takes all of yours that would take you for an all, all of eternity to, to pay back yourself. And he does that for all the elect. All of them. In a moment. That's the intensity of the trial. Now, here's the reality. None of us could even face that kind of trial can even face that kind of intensity, that kind of test. You and I could never even face the measure of the intensity and the testing and the faith required and the righteousness proven in that moment. Never. And what does Jesus do? He does what he always did. My father is good. I trust him. Help me endure this. Help my frail humanity to make it under this trial. Help me. Help me. Jesus proved the depth of his righteousness in a moment, unlike anyone before him and anyone after him or anyone could even possibly prove. There could be no greater test to the depth of righteousness than the eternal Son of God being faced with bearing the wrath from his Father for all the sins of all his people. There could be no greater test. There could be no greater intensity of test and proven righteousness and Jesus passed. He passed. And he earned that measure of righteousness. He earned it. It's his. And here's the deal. If that's not amazing enough in and of itself, then let me land the plane here. That is the source of our salvation. That's the source of our eternal salvation right there. And because that is, and that is the righteousness that you and I are given. You and I are not given a righteousness equal to that which you and I could even earn. Given all the perfect scenario. You born, you obey mom and dad, you do all of that perfectly, and then you die. The righteousness you're given in Jesus is infinitely more than that. And it's credited to you by faith. It's yours. It's a free gift. That's given to you, and it's given to me. That depth of righteousness is mine, and it's yours. For those who have obedient faith in Christ, it's yours. Let's pray. Father, may your people, may your people grasp that this is our righteousness. That it, all of it is ours. That it is accredited to us. Not just part of it. Not just an equal measure to to what we could potentially have earned have we had all the, uh, the, the same things that Christ had, but we are given all of it. Every last bit of it is accredited to us. And that we stand before you with that righteousness. And Father, we walk into terrible situations with that righteousness. 
Father, we walk into leading our houses as men with that righteousness. We walk into following our husbands or rightfully uh, not submitting when they are walking in unrighteousness. We do that in this righteousness of Christ. Father, we go to our employers and our places of employment with this righteousness. So my question, Father, what, what is there to stop us from then living out that righteousness when it has all been accredited to us because of Jesus? I thank you for providing for us such an amazingly deep, rich, bountiful righteousness that we get this salvation and to enjoy it forever. I thank you for your grace to us and your mercy. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.